Hello and welcome to the first episode of 2019. I hope you had a good break and a good holiday season. As you know, my name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centred design practitioner based in Dublin City, Ireland. Now, before we begin, I want to take this opportunity to wish you a very happy new year. I hope it's a good one for you. And in this episode, I caught up with Dr. John Curran, a London-based anthropologist. Now, we met in service design days in Barcelona, where John was giving a keynote on conflict and how important it is to deal with this, not only in the design process, but also the broader impact to the business itself. So how we speak and manage conflict has a direct correlation to the success metrics that are associated with many of the products and services that we as practitioners are often involved in. Now, we chat about this and also the role of collaboration and its impact to culture. It's a big conversation and it's a really good one. I really enjoyed it. Now, since we recorded this episode, myself and John started speaking a little bit more frequently and I'm delighted to again announce that John will be a regular voice on This Is HCD and will be a guest host speaking in all matters related to organisational development and culture. How good is that? Now, we have a few more of these announcements to come in the next few weeks, so please stay tuned. So let's get straight into this conversation with John. John Curran, a very warm welcome to This Is HCD podcast. Hello, Jerry. Thank you so much for inviting me as well. I'm really looking forward to this. John, uh, we recently caught up at Service Design Days in Barcelona. You're coming live from London, is that correct? That's right, yes. Yeah. South London, Crystal Palace of all places. South London spelled S-A-R-F, isn't it? Sarf That's right. London? Yes, yeah, South London. South London, mate. And then yeah. you put mate on the end. <laughs> I love it. John, um, tell us a little bit about yourself like, and, and how do you describe what you do and how you got to where you are today? My background is I'm an anthropologist, a social anthropologist, but I work in the world of business and also design. So my kind of official title would be a business anthropologist. I've got a couple of fingers in academia as well at the Royal College of Art in London, also CAS Business School. But predominantly, I work as a consultant with a group of associates as well. And I'm really interested in the interface between organizational culture and consumer culture. Okay, so how do organizations really think about their consumers? How do organizations, in a genuine way, become kind of customer or consumer-centric in how they develop strategy, how they think about new product development, brand, marketing, services. So that's my kind of world. I kind of got one leg in each camp. I work with the organizations themselves to see how they collaborate with teams uh, from a kind of organizational culture perspective. So I've also got a background as an executive coach and work with leaders and leadership teams. And then I also, as an anthropologist, I've got a background, 20 years background in commercial ethnography and qualitative research. I was one of the kind of one of the few kind of pioneers of in Britain of using anthropology within the commercial world. And like so, yeah, and I can take the organization, the client on that journey as well. So they can really experience what that kind of customer's world and culture is about. So you definitely have a, a varied week by week. You could be doing ethnography one week and then you could be doing executive coaching the next. That's right. And sometimes the two of them are interconnected. It might lead on to something. I mean, the amazing thing about working with organizations and also doing the executive stuff and the, the team development stuff, facilitation, fundamentally, you're dealing with culture. You're dealing with people. So, you know, your mindset as the anthropologist is the same. You're trying to decode what's going on. That could be in the consumer world or in the organization's world. So I, I also do ethnography in organizations. 
you know, it's what I call the kind of cultural 360 audit, right? Where I yeah. hang out and I observe how the different teams collaborate, how might that be improved? And fundamentally, you know, we know this in service design, why is this going on? John, how do you describe culture to your friends? Okay, if I'm in a in my local pub and we're talking about culture, of course we do. I would talk about culture as fundamentally messy. It's an unconscious process that we learn over years. But we learn, and what it does, culture does, it shapes us. It shapes our behavior. It shapes our way of thinking. It shapes about how we consume, the brands that we consume. But fundamentally, culture is very much about the collective. You know, that it's about us forming our sense of identity against another identity or another group, right? So, so culture is a way that kind of formalizes who we are. But the, the important thing about culture is it's largely unconscious, so I have a big issue with organizations when they talk about our organizational culture is because you can't do that. An organization is made up of subcultures, right? Different teams, different values. If you've got engineers over there and you've got marketing over there, that's two different languages, right? And they're trying to preserve their identity. So how do you work with that cultural difference so you can get collaboration? So when you say two different groups, would you call them tribes? Yeah, I mean, the tribe, sometimes I call them subcultures. I, th- I think the word tribe, it's, it's an interesting word, right? Because in the, in the traditional anthropology, in academia, the tribe was seen as a kind of otherness, an exotic, right? But if we can talk about subculture, it's got a bit more substance, something a little bit more workable. It's a bit more real. I think tribe sounds sexy, um, but actually it doesn't make... It doesn't make the course for you. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, and the really important thing here about subcultures within organizations is that they are constantly trying to preserve who they are. So if you have a, a fantastic service design workshop and it's all, all going well, you are actually dealing with a lot of conflict that exists within this. And that's one thing I've kind of spoken about, which is, you know, we need to really embrace conflict in, the, in organizations, also conflict within the consumer world. Conflict is thinking data, I call it. And if we can actually, from a design perspective, start thinking about almost designing for conflict rather than trying to iron out conflict, which is the default button of design, then actually I think there's some real juicy innovation opportunities we can be thinking about. So what's the end goal that you're trying to work towards when you're working with organizations? Okay, end goal, I think there would probably be two. One of which is that they become truly customer-centric now. What does that mean, truly customer-centric? I would see truly customer-centric being that they have to have different touch points along the way, how they design strategy for the future, for their customers, how they think about product development. So much so that this idea of being customer-centric has to be written into KPIs, into job descriptions, into how they actually work, how they conduct meetings, so it, it's a living process rather than just like we are customer-centric and we put the customer at everything in the center of everything we do. And you see those as beautiful mission statements. Yeah. You get past the mission statement, you're going, where are you? Come on, let's work on Yeah, that. absolutely. I know like in, in some of the, the work that I've done over the last maybe five, ten years, organizations tend to think that they already are customer-centric. Yeah. So how do you get around that? If they think they are, but you know that they're not, Yeah. what do you do? Okay, well, you have to show value, basically. It's a lovely thing to think that you are, but 
if an organization or a brand can't see the value of being customer centric, and when I'm talking about value, I'm talking about business value. Yeah. Okay. They're definitely stakeholder, shareholder centric, but they might not be customer centric. And that's a different thing. So you have to really show what the value is here. So I will be doing this through using case studies, walking organizations, teams through every single step of why this is important to uh, how they work, how they think, how they interact with customers. Partly that's also got to do with making them really understand about how easy it is for customers to turn against your brand. So who would tend to bring you into the organization? Like who's... Who's the target market for John Curran? Okay, so I think that there are probably at the moment two big ones and one emerging one. And the two big ones will be predominantly marketing, but then also C-suite, so kind of more execs. And the execs might, you know, might have heard me doing a talk or in a, you know some other place or heard, it, and they're they're very quick at kind of signing something off. They kind of see it quite quickly, but then you know then you'd be looking at the heads of marketing. Why do you think the heads of marketing are looking for an anthropologist to come into their organization? Because I, I, I'm seeing a big kind of shift and a big kind of trend here that they are really beginning to see the value of, firstly, in their organization being customer-centric, but also that the consumer world is so fast-moving now that if they see the value of culture, then they know that they need the anthropological input and way of thinking there as well. I mean, I do, you know, companies, like especially kind of pharmaceutical companies where they've got the innovation departments, you know, you'll be working there as well. But, you know, the marketing and the innovation would be crossing over. They, they kind of need to because a lot of the insights are relevant to both of them. Um, and then the emerging one, which is really interesting, which I've, I'm finding really exciting, is human resources. And, you know, I don't know what this human resources looks like to your global audience, but very much in the UK, the traditional image of human resources were these people who kind of cracked the whip and, you know, um, were quite kind of dictatorial. You know, it's about policy, it's about process operations. But I'm finding now that human resources are becoming much more dynamic, much more forward thinking. And one of the big things I do, I do training around how to think about your customers and also your organized from a cultural perspective. And HR are the ones who are kind of going, ah, ah, I think that's what we need to bring in. So it isn't just marketing saying that, it's HR bringing that in as well. So one of the things, because like, the majority of our, our listenerships are design and yeah. service design, user experience design, and they intrinsically are human-centered. They, they bring the research back and they're bringing it from um, a place of goodness and, and a lot of the time into a place where the cultures don't really seem to appreciate the values. So it's that disconnect between intent and the business objectives. Yeah. So the business being like, we need to sell more, blah, blah, blah. And in your talk, we spoke a little bit more around that conflict. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about um, how we might embrace that conflict and it might unlock some of that potential for for innovation, what I, I try to avoid to use the word innovation, but more like the design centricity or the human centeredness to blossom in an organization. I mean, I think I think that's a really great point, and it's a complex point as well. So, I mean, going right back to what my interest is around the interface between organizational culture and consumer culture, one of the things I said was, where does design sit within that interface or that relationship, right? And you know, this idea of, I think that. When I talk about the design world, I'm, I'm fundamentally here talking about kind of design agencies and how they interact with their clients. 
And often what I've seen, I've experienced it itself with my projects, um, not just in design, but also in marketing, where you think that you've done a fantastic project, you've uncovered some brilliant insights, you run the best co-creation workshop with your client at the end, and then it kind of goes nowhere, it fizzles out. And you think, oh, why did that happen? And I'm what I've realized over the years is fundamentally this is happening because the organization themselves, your client, maybe aren't ready for that, or maybe there are too many barriers, there are too many what I call rituals of resistance between teams in the organization to actually activate the value propositions. And what I'm what I'm really kind of saying is that to be a hundred percent human centered in what you do, you need to really focus on what conflict is. And I think that that's one of the kind of key points. And when I'm talking about conflict here, conflict is a key part of culture. If we didn't have conflict, we wouldn't have culture. And it's people and it's human beings that make up culture and they're experiencing and they're acting out what these acts of conflict are. So by understanding the touch points of where conflict exists within your client's organization, even within your organization, will allow you then to kind of be able to monitor and understand how best to kind of implement new insights around customers. What One of the key things then I look at is around collaboration. And from collaboration, if you can get that right, you get productivity amongst teams. And one of the key kind of metrics in a way, and I'm using this word metrics as an anthropologist, which sounds yeah. weird, but it's about being able to get different teams to see the shared good in what a project will offer without each team thinking that they're going to lose their identity or they're going to be more devalued than another team. So marketing is more important than engineering because then engineering will be thinking, screw you, you know, I'll come along to the workshop, but I'll be playing with my pen at the back. Kind of, I've seen this many times happen. Right. So it's like, how do you accept, number one, that there will be conflict because we're different, right? We speak different languages within organizations. And how do you work with it? How do you get collaboration? So for the design world, for design agencies going in, the first part of being human-centered is being human-centered towards who your client is and what's going on there. And that, how do you do that, right? The first way you do that is usually through your, what you call the contract client, right? Who is actually paying for your services within the organization? And you need to build trust with them. By building trust, I mean by being able to sit down and kind of go, okay, so look, we've agreed on what this, the strategy, the focus of the project's going to be. This is brilliant. What barriers do you think there are in place that's going to make this hard that we need to work on now before we go into the field around the world and understand people's uses of technology, whatever, right? You know, so by asking that question about what barriers exist, the what means that you are saying that there are barriers, Not, are there any barriers? If you say, are there any barriers, then the response is no, end of conversation, right? If you can say to them, what barriers are there out there in your teams? And they'll go, well, actually, you know, there's a bit of tension. There's been a lot of change happening in this team. Okay, okay, maybe we need to step back and do a bit of pre-work before we activate. Now, the output of that question is that your contract client within, you know, your client will think, I trust you. I really see you as someone I can share stuff with. And that relationship builds and builds and builds. So what kind of behaviors do you think people should be trying to change? What are the destructive behaviors that you've observed? Yeah, so, I mean, and that's a great question, right? Because the destructive behaviors are, 
it's what you see on the school you see on the school playground. I would <laughs> and then you know, but I think teenagers or kids are better at solving them, right? But you see what I call acts of resistance or rituals of resistance. For example, uh, an example would be a no show, not coming to the workshop. Um, if there's you know, big workshop means big investment, right? But you'll get last minute cancellations, and by that stage, you know where those cancellations are coming from. So that that's a really good one. The other one you hear is yeah, but. We can't do that because, which stifles any form of creativity or in, even thinking, trying to think, you know, outside the box or just being able to divest yourself from who you are in the organization. The yeah, but you'd be surprised how powerful that is, right? Often then the yeah, but it will be one or two antagonists. They might then get attacked within the workshop setting by people who pro what you're doing within the organization. And what I often do is stand back and let that play out. And then I'll come back and reflect and go, can I just share with you some stuff I've just noticed? You know, we're talking about your customers who are using your products, your brand, and you are, it doesn't fit. I'm not feeling that. I'm not feeling that you engage with that. So you're exposing what's already there. You're not going to try to tell them something new. So what does it look like? Because people... In my experience, when I've gone into organizations and some have fantastic cultures where, where they, you know, they walk the walk and they talk the talk. Other times I've been in cultures that are quite toxic mm-hmm. and you speak to the leaders and they're, they're just totally unaware of it. Is it possible ever for a leader to truly understand the cultures and the subcultures? I can almost hope that they don't truly understand them because then that gets their work done for them. What, what I say to leaders, and I've kind of created this model that I work them through around coaching about how they always have to keep their finger on the pulse of what their subcultures are doing because it's they're always changing as well. Their little micro changes can have a bigger impact on another team. So, what kind of changes are we talking about there? Like new employees, yeah, yeah new anything like that. New employees, um, redundancies, uh, moving office, a change in focus or strategy. From a leadership point of view, that might just be seen as that's what has to happen but the impact is incredible. So all those things, the leader needs to be really, really aware of what those touch points are. And by that, they need to be, um, it's changing from what the CEO of Microsoft calls from a knowing culture to a learning culture. And a learning culture is fun. And this is what I talk to leaders about. And this word comes up all the time, but I'm always trying to push it. Um, Learning and listening fundamentally is about empathy. But empathy isn't about kind of going, oh, I, f- I really feel your pain. Or it's not even, <laughs> or it's not just about walking in the shoes of your employees or your customers. Empathy is really about you as the leader. Empathy is about you being able to stand back and question, how am I feeling within this? What's it griping in my stomach? As a researcher should do, a good ethnographer should always be reflective. You know, why don't I buy that? What is it about me that's about that? And so, you know, that's a really important point. So when I'm working as a consultant, I see myself within that space, within the organization, as also a political figure. I'm part of the politics because I'm an outsider. And I think the idea about being political, I think that in design, that also has to come into it. I think in the Harvard Business Review recently, there was an article on design thinking being conservative and actually preserving the organizational cultural status quo. The designer is away from being political when actually they're fundamentally part of it. So, you know, and that's the cultural mess. That's why culture is messy. Absolutely. So like 
the design thinking thing is, is really important. We could definitely speak a lot more about that, about the institutionalization of designers when they're working within those cultures. Yeah. They miss these things in their, what I call the design blind spot. Right, yeah. And I guess that's probably an, a, a great topic for another podcast potentially. But I'm really keen to, to drill in a little bit more around the intersect between conflict and culture. Yeah. And like one of the key takeaways from your keynote was that that should be embraced. Now, in my experience, human behavior is always a little bit more like it's difficult to to embrace it because it's a difficult thing to talk about. Yeah. What examples or what advice would you give to designers to be able to go over to the engineering department or go over to the marketing department or go whoever it is in, in your organization and be able to to change this? Okay, I think that, that that's great because it... it I don't know, a lot of the examples I'm giving you, they sound really simple, but they're not, they're, they're really hard to do. Um, so, so I'm going to give you one, uh, maybe more of a tool or technique that people can use. And I think it's, it's really important because it creates a different, we're talking about trust here. If you're going to have that honest conversation around conflict, you need to have trust with the other person um, or the other team. I just want to kind of quickly pick up, by the way, um, in a survey done on European and US executives, I saw this on a TED talk by Margaret Heffernan. 85% of executives are too scared to talk about issues that they think are important because of a fear of conflict. Wow. 85%. I mean, that's incredible, right? So I just thought I'd throw that in as, as a stat because that's the only stat you're going to get. But um, the, the, <laughs> the tool is then, what I really promote is that if you want to have an honest conversation that's about something that you feel isn't working and you feel that there are barriers being put up or kind of rituals of resistance, if you were going to go to the engineering department and have that conversation with them, you need to start off on a positive, right? That there is something positive going on first. And that, you might think, well, actually, that's made up. You're trying to fabricate. There's always positives that are going on. So if it's about a collaboration and we're working together, but there's an issue, there's something going well with us working together. And let's pick up on that first, because it, it creates a completely different psychological platform for you then to discuss around a soft entry. A soft entry. That's a great way of looking yeah. at it, right? So it's thanks, very yeah. Much. No, it's, you uh, can sell. and I've just noted that, and it's already copyrighted. So there you go. That that one's for free. <laughs> um, so, but it is about the soft entry. But the dynamics are, you know, this is really working well. Now I'm just wondering where we sit with this because it feels at the moment that we're finding it hard to move it forward. I'm just, it would be really helpful to hear what your thoughts are on this, you know. And then you're putting the onus on them. Instead of coming with this idea of like, look, we need to talk, things aren't working out, we've got a deadline, or or you keep on saying this, no, you keep on saying that, you keep and then you're in the conflict game. You know, and that that gets nowhere. That's how conflict works. It's I will get my troops, I'll get my my supporters, you will get your supporters, and then we will clash and explode. And then it, but the explosion in conflict isn't the conflict. The conflict was happening months before. That's brilliant. And I, I've definitely uh, done some of those things. There's definitely a few things I could probably do a little bit better. But well, what are the definite no-nos that you've seen in regards handling conflict? Well, what about two teams coming together, as they say, and I'm doing air quotes here to nut it out? Or even better, they might kind of go, let's workshop this. Is that a good or a bad solution? No, no the, the workshop, let's workshop this, for me, would be a strategic tool to use to deal with what's going on. And then once I've agreed or once we've agreed that there's going to be a workshop, I will then be sitting down with the clients who are my contract clients where we've got trust to say, okay, now we're going to have these people there and these, you know, two tribes come to war. You know, Frankie goes to Hollywood. 
I was yeah. going to say Frankie. It was Frankie, right? Yeah. Now, this is how we're going to work it. I want the CEO to open up the discussion in that workshop. Let's get the date so the CEO's there. Fundamentally, this is coming from the leader down, and then you guys are going to have to work together, collaborate to co-create how that's going to work. So you feel empowered now, but it's the leader who has said this. And instead of it being the leadership is kind of almost some abstract form somewhere else. And this is really, really important. Leadership has to be heard. The leaders have to be heard when you're workshopping like that. And then you go to that next list. And then the workshop becomes this kind of ritualized space where you can talk about, so what do people think? And then you might get a difference of opinions, and that's fine, but it, it's less the conflict part of it. The everyday conflict has been reduced. And the key thing then about the workshop is if you create actions at the back, you're creating accountability. And once you've got accountability, so it's very hard for people to, if people do shun away from it, then you can actually use that against them. Use that against them doesn't sound no, but, too no, but fu- No, but fundamentally <laughs> that's where it does come down to. If, if, yeah. if a client invests a considerable sum of money to create a value system, for example, True. that an organization is going to have to embed and you've got silo pockets who can go, no, this is rubbish. We never used to do it like this. And they won't shift. And you try to get them shift. Then finally it does come to that cliff edge, right? Where are you going to go? Absolutely. And like, it's probably a good point to make. In any of the design teams that are on, the best ones have always had arguments. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're always arguing and we're always like bickering about stuff because we care. Yeah. You know, so it's coming from that place. I guess it's a little bit different when it's coming from a place of, animosity or, or sort of badness, I suppose. That's a good, I mean, that's, you know, what you're saying about disagreement is part of maybe professional conflict. You're all invested in the same thing. You all feel passionately about that group you're focusing on, but you want it to be good. So you, but as long as you can have disagreement, but each one listens, that's important. Yeah, no, absolutely. So John, we are coming towards the end of the episode and uh, we have three questions that we always ask our guests. Yep. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to ask you the first question is, what's the one professional skill that you wish you were better at and why? I wish I was better at mathematics. Um, I failed my maths uh, when I was a teenager. Um, and it's only in this kind of part of my life now I'm seeing how actually creative maths and mathematics can be in the work in understanding culture. I'm saying running a business as well. Well, yeah, that's why I've got 18 accountants. <laughs> <laughs> And five unused spreadsheets. Exactly. What's a spreadsheet? <laughs> yeah. Well, ask Andy because that was his thing. He hates spreadsheets. <laughs> and the next question is, what is the one thing that you wish you were able to banish from the industry and why? Okay, can I be really radical here? Go radical, man. They're radical ones are the best ones. Okay, I would banish post-it notes. What? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I'll see if I could be radical. I'm hoping you're going to say why at the end of this, because like people are listening, kind of one eyebrow raised now. What's going on well, with the post-it notes? The Sistine Chapel wasn't built on using <laughs> Ferrari. wasn't built using a post-it. No, okay, look. Yeah, but like he might have concepted on the post-it note before he went to do the Sistine Chapel. I said let's banish the post-it notes, where I've literally got about thirty piles sitting around me. So I'm being. I think maybe this is what I'm actually saying is what we spoke about around the workshop. If you have the tools, like things like post-it notes, Sharpies and stuff, they also give the impression, okay, we're going to go into a creative space here. So does it actually disable the ability to work with conflict as well? So we kind of got these kind of 
iconic tools of creativity and you know we come in in t-shirts and jeans and everyone else you know so i'm just thinking about you know the the poster note being more symbolic representation of not actually dealing with the kind of grime and the rubbish that we need. yeah i i guess it depends where it's coming into the organization exactly. maturity yeah if, it, if it's in a mature organization like and they use it as as a form of note-taking then it's great yeah. If you're going into a government organization and they don't even have computers, they're still using like scrolls and feathers and, you know. <laughs> but also, especially when you're working with a charity, right? It's sometimes they see it as a waste. Because, yeah, you know, they have, to, they have to think of every penny or every cent that they're using. So it's absolutely, a, you know, the way I use post it notes, I just like flick them and put them, write one or two words on them, and that's it. Yeah. So. The last question is, and I'm conscious you don't claim to be a designer, but what is the one piece of advice you'd give to emerging designers or emerging professionals in your industry for the future? So, yeah, you're right. I'm not a designer. I guess I've got, I, I interact with the design world. I, there's maybe something I kind of have experienced being a consultant for 20 years, the importance of maybe really understanding client side as well for a bit, you know, to understand how organizations work. So just by being maybe a designer and going into organizations as a young designer, you'll be fantastic, you know, all the stuff, and you, you know, do some great stuff. But actually to have a little bit of time in an organization being a designer would be a very interesting challenge because you would learn, I think, quite a lot. John, that's a great way to end the conversation. Thank you so much for your time um, today. You, if people want to reach out to you on Twitter or LinkedIn, how might they do that? My Twitter is at Dr. J Curran. LinkedIn, I'm sure you could just put that in and it will kind of come up notes. somewhere. Yeah, come in the show yeah, notes. Exactly. And there's details there how you can get in contact with me and stuff. And I'll also pop a link to your, your keynote in the show notes as well, so people can have a look at it. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.